we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. All progress has resulted from people who took unpopular positions. So said Adlai Stevenson back in 1954. I'm Dr. Marilyn Singleton and welcome to America Out Loud Pulse, a beat ahead. When clinical practice guidelines first came out, they sounded like a good idea. Some experts in a certain field of medicine would get together. They decide what the best things to do for patients. What could go wrong? Well, it didn't take much time for the flaws in the concept to come out. Some of the recommendations were designed to save money rather than benefit patients. Some guidelines appeared to be influenced by the companies who would make money from their use. Hmm, big pharma ring a bell? We certainly learned during COVID-19 that the experts were not always right. In fact, they're turning out to be very wrong. And sometimes these experts were corrupted by influence from the pharmaceutical companies. Hmm, they rear their ugly heads again. Medicine is traditionally full of all sorts of information, all sorts of different opinions. I mean, the human body and its reaction to medicines and other treatments are not always predictable. Continually questioning the so-called settled science is how progress is made. It became clear to real doctors that these guidelines became a crutch promoting cookbook medicine, and as my guest puts it, eliminates unproductive time spent taking the patient's individual circumstances, conditions, and needs into consideration so as to provide optimal care. Worse yet, these guidelines have been used as a weapon against good, innovative physicians and sometimes to crush a competitor or someone who refuses to sell his practice to a large group. Critics of doctors who think outside the proverbial box conflate these guidelines with the standard of care, the standard of practice by which physicians are legally held. That's a legal definition of good medical practice in the community with the same resources that the physician at issue had. What constitutes the standard of care will change from community to community and evolves over time. Guidelines can be considered as a factor, but they do not define the standard of care. In a great South Carolina case over 20 years ago, the judge said the mere fact that a plaintiff's expert may use a different approach is not considered a deviation from the recognized standard of medical care, nor is the standard violated because the expert disagrees with a defendant as to what is the best or better approach in treating a patient. Medicine is an inexact science, and generally qualified physicians may differ as to what constitutes a preferable course of treatment. Such differences due to preference do not amount to malpractice. 
My guest and I will discuss these issues and how needlessly attacking doctors harms patients. My guest today, Dr. Larry Huntoon, is the editor-in-chief of the Journal of American Physicians and Surgeons, the secretary of the Association of Physician, American Physicians and Surgeons, and president of the American Health Legal Foundation. He's been the chairman of the AAPS Committee to Combat Sham Peer Review for the past 20 years. Dr. Huntoon earned his MD and PhD from Louisiana State University Medical Center. He is a board-certified fellow of the American Academy of Neurology, and he recently retired. He's an internationally recognized expert in sham peer review and has written about and lectured on sham peer review worldwide. Welcome to the show, Dr. Huntoon. Thank you, Marilyn. And, uh, Thank you for all that you do as far as helping to educate the public. Well, let's get started. Something I like to ask doctors, just because sometimes people think doctors are stodgy folk. I just like to find out what got you interested in medicine. Well, I uh, always had an interest in neuroscience and spent time actually doing research in neuroscience in college and I always had a great interest in the brain and the way the brain functions and so uh, naturally that sort of led me uh, into going into neurology and uh, I got my PhD in physiology and that was uh, focused on neurophysiology. Well very good. And um, may I ask, how many years did you practice neurology? Yeah, about 34. Oh, my goodness. Well, I think a lot of people think of neurologists as eggheads. I certainly do. They were kind of the smart people who were in school. And uh, but, gee, these days, so very necessary. Well, let's get to the subject at issue that medicine has a history of having doctors who were accused of being incompetent just because they're innovative, they came up with new ideas. And as it turned out, in many cases, they turned out to be right. Tell us one of the famous stories, one that I've mentioned before, but he has such an interesting story, Dr. Ignaz Semmelweis. Yes, Dr. Semmelweis uh, was a Hungarian physician in the uh, mid-1800s. He was an obstetrician, and he was a very observant fellow. One of the problems in those days, uh, as far as giving birth, was something known as puerperal sepsis. It's also called childbed uh, fever. And that killed about 20 to 30% of women in childbirth. So that was a really big problem. And Dr. Semmelweis noticed, he was, again, very observant. He noticed that the mortality rate uh, among the women who were served by medical students and attending physicians was quite a bit higher than the mortality rate uh, next door uh, for uh, nurses. And, and whatnot who were assisting women in giving birth. And he wondered why that was. 
And at one point, the hospital implemented a mandate. And anytime you hear the word mandate, you know, (laughs) it generally comes out to be something not very good. But the hospital mandated that all women who died of childbed fever had to have an autopsy. The attending physicians and medical students had to do an autopsy. And so what would happen was they would go to the autopsy table and go directly from the autopsy table to the delivery unit without washing their hands. There were no surgical gloves in those days. All procedures were done bare hands. And, uh, and so that led to a further increase in mortality uh, among uh, women giving birth. And so Dr. Semmelweis, he hypothesized that these uh, physicians were carrying something harmful from the autopsy table to the delivery room. And so he set out to investigate that. And that did not make the chief of obstetrics very uh, happy. Uh, In fact, he was somewhat annoyed and irritated at that. Uh, But what Dr. Semmelweis decided to do was to uh, ask physicians to wash their hands in a chlorinated solution, which would kill bacteria. And uh, once that was done, the mortality rate dropped tremendously. But Dr. Semmelweis, again, others were very indignant that he would suggest that the holy hands, you know, of these physicians were somehow transmitting things that killed their patients. They were very annoyed at that. They said he was basically a a lunatic, and they lured the poor fellow uh, into visiting an insane asylum. And they didn't tell him what they had in mind for him. But when he went to leave the insane asylum that he thought he was just there to visit, uh, the guards grabbed him and put him in the insane asylum. And they administered the treatment of the day, which was dousing him in cold water, uh, forced laxatives, and severe beatings. And on one occasion, Dr. Semmelweis, in defending himself, got a cut on one of his hands, and that led to blood infection called sepsis. And he died two weeks after going into the insane asylum at age 47. So it turned out he was right, of course, that, uh, you know, the physicians who weren't washing their hands prior to delivery were spreading organisms that killed these mothers in delivery. And uh, and so he was right. <laughs> well, did he get a great big apology even after his death? Uh-huh. <laughs> there was no apology, but of course they did end up naming, you know, a a medical school uh, after him that was uh, some time after his death that that was done and so there now is a Semmelweis uh, university in his uh, in his honor well thank goodness at least uh, afterwards it was recognized how right somebody could be what could be more basic than hand washing and this is what's so stunning to me that someone comes up with something that even though it was a long time ago, it's kind of common sense. If you have clean hands, there's likely not bugs on there and people knew about bugs and dirt. And even if they didn't know the fine points and to be vilified and called a lunatic, but 
this is what we've run into on more than one occasion. So um, how isn't there uh, the doctors that discovered the defibrillator? Weren't they treated like clowns because they came up with that idea? Uh, they absolutely were. And I should mention that in the late 1980s, there was a group that organized and called itself the Semmelweis Society. And it was a group of physicians who had been victimized by abusive peer review, sham peer review. And so the idea was, is that peer review should be done with clean hands. Oh. <laughs> so that's the Semmelweis Society, and they still exist today. The uh, Michelle Murawski and Morton Moore story is another one of these uh, stories where the the doctors were really ahead of their time and, and they were proposing something that they felt would really help save many lives. And so these two doctors uh, were working in the basement of Baltimore Sinai Hospital trying to develop an implantable cardioverter defibrillator device. So this would be like the uh, devices you see, the external devices maybe you see in some of the TV programs where they hook somebody up and they have a particular rhythm problem, heart rhythm problem, and they shock them back into a normal rhythm. Well, these two innovative physicians had the idea, why couldn't we implant one of these in a person's uh, chest and it would monitor their heart rhythm. And if they developed a potentially lethal rhythm, it could just shock them right there on the spot and save their lives. So again, uh, they were called crazy. Uh, they were called lunatics. Uh, some prominent uh, cardiologists said, you know, that this device they were working on would likely electrocute and kill people. And their article, they tried to write articles and those were all rejected and they were scoffed at. So they had the same experience uh, basically as Dr. Semmelweis, except they weren't thrown into an insane asylum where they were killed. And of course, uh, eventually the uh, ICD, which is the implantable cardioverter device, uh, was uh, developed and it has saved, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives as a result. Well, it's interesting, you know, these guys weren't put in asylum and killed, but what's worse in our generation, what can kill, quote unquote, a doctor is ruining his reputation. And this is what some of these folks try to do is... Um, make out like the person's a fool, uh, they're an idiot, they just made this up. And uh, this has gone on and on and on. And certainly the COVID has brought it out. And uh, we're going to talk about what kind of, uh, one of the things in medicine that has made accusing physicians of wrongful conduct so much easier. And that's these clinical practice guidelines. And after the break, we're going to go into that, describe what they are, how people come up with them, and how they've been used. Right now, I'm just going to tell you about my old friend, Cofix Rx. This is a nasal spray. I've been using it for a couple of years, and it's 
made of iodine and xylitol, both of which are found to decrease germs, whether they be viruses or bacterial. And speaking of our topic and people saying, oh, that'll never work. Well, that's what was said when this came out. And it's very interesting because now there's more papers that show that iodine as well as xylitol do kill both viruses and bacteria. And whether it's to fight off COVID or your random colds, it's a good idea to keep some Cofix RX around and just remember that because we inhale these viruses through our nose, most of them, if you use the Cofix RX, you may cut down the viral load. And even if you get sick, you might not get quite as sick. And one of the things I love about it is that it was invented in the USA and manufactured in the USA. What could be better than that? So it's sold in lots of stores, uh, regular drug stores, health food stores. And right on our page, we've got a little button that says Cofix RX. You can click that on and read more about it and purchase some if you're interested. Um, it's worth a try, anything to cut down getting colds and flu. And the season isn't quite over. And you know, if you're like me, you can get a cold year round. So take a peek and see what you think. If you're like me, you'd like life to return to some kind of normal. You're burned out on all the fear mongering, but deep down you try and minimize viral exposure and your risk of getting sick. You've heard it talked about time and again by respected medical professionals. Use a pulvinone iodine nasal solution. I don't need to tell you just how powerful a nasal cleansing formula with xylitol, pulvinone iodine, and vitamin D3 for immune support could be. In fact, my attorney told me not to tell you. Google it and find out for yourself. Now, get yourself a bottle of American-made Cofix RX nasal solution. Let's get out and live again. CofixRx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com. Use coupon code out loud and get 20% off. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. The Wellness Company's chief medical board designed every supplement and medical protocol with your health in mind. From groundbreaking supplements like the Spike Support Formula to unique care like Freedom from Big Pharma. Join a healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interest of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be, with a company that shares your values. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Now, back to our show we were going to talk about these so-called clinical practice guidelines. They became very popular, I don't know, 25, 30 years ago. And uh, Dr. Huntoon will kind of educate us where these come from and what could be a problem with them. So go for it, doctor. Well, the clinical practice guidelines had a good idea in that they their intended purpose was to reduce variations in care throughout the country, for example. And the, the problem has been corruption. 
that many of the people who, who author these clinical practice guidelines have significant financial conflicts of interest, principally with pharmaceutical companies. And naturally, they recommend, you know, the latest, greatest, and most expensive pharmaceuticals over off-patent type uh, medications that no longer bring in tremendous profits. So the intentions were good, but like the saying goes, uh, good intentions pave the way to hell. And uh, the clinical practice guidelines, which are really nothing more than recommendations, uh, have been basically translated or conflated to be, you know, the standard of care checkbook boxes where you go down from one to the next, you do this, do that, do this. And that has been, you know, embraced uh, strongly by hospitalists who practice in hospitals because they do kind of assembly line work and it makes their work more efficient if they can just go down and, and uh, plug a patient into one of these guidelines. But the guidelines don't take uh, into consideration the patient's individual situation, various other diseases they may have, medications they're on, family history, and all, and all of that. And they can be uh, harmful. And so that's, that's sort of where it developed. They certainly come from multiple sources. We've heard about CDC guidelines. There are specialty societies that put out various uh, guidelines. And so that's what we, we see. And uh, it's it's not been good. Well, uh, give an example. Like I've read, you know, somebody's giving a, a, a paper on high blood pressure, for example. And then there's a list of what you should do for a patient with high blood pressure. And then they give different medicines and say, well, first you should try this and then this and then that. And uh, are those the type of things that the guidelines are? Yes. And they have that for many, many different conditions. And uh, again, the there's many problems with the guidelines. For, for one thing, by the time they're published, uh, some of them are out of date. Oftentimes, one guideline will conflict with another guideline. A lot of times, the people who author these guidelines won't let it be known what studies or scientific evidence support their guidelines, if any. And, you know, again, a lot of these guidelines are advocating use of very expensive new pharmaceuticals. And the important thing is when you look at these guidelines is to look and see the disclosures. They're supposed to disclose their conflicts of interest, but I can tell you they're very hard to find on the websites that publish these, uh, these guidelines. And uh, I spent some time looking at the, uh, the guidelines for treating COPD. They're called gold guidelines. And what I found was 100% of the doctors who participated in authoring the guidelines had received significant money from pharmaceutical companies that produced medications to treat COPD. That's the chronic obstructive lung disease or pulmonary disease, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. I, I know. Now they're calling it 
cold on the TV, on the drugs that they're advertising for treating it, chronic obstructive lung disease, you know, making it more user-friendly for the people watching TV to go run into their doctor's office and say, give me this drug for my COPD. It's kind of sick, isn't it? Yes. And and really, can you trust people who are receiving th- tens of thousands of dollars from pharmaceutical companies to give you an unbiased view of what the most effective and best drugs to use under certain situations. Well, I understand and have seen it even on some of these specialty boards that doctors take to where you say somebody's board certified as I am in anesthesiology as Dr. Huntoon is in neurology that you, so you take a specialty board that some of the answers on the test these days, it didn't used to be that way before Big Pharma had so much influence with his $132 million of lobbying money every year, um, that the best answer was some sort of new drug. And people in clinical practice so many times in your heart in your experience, you knew that was not the best answer. Right, right. Oh, and what can you do? You've got to take the test. And I'm sure people who've taken the SATs or any of these other tests know sometimes you've got to put the answer that you know the computer who's reading the test wants to see because you want the score, not because you, you really believe it. Right. And some people look at the specialty boards, the American Academy of whatever the specialty is, as, wow, those are those must be the best of the best. They're going to give us an unbiased opinion of of the best way to treat this particular disease or, or illness. And you always have to look at the disclosure statements if you can find them. And uh, and again, it's, it's not unbiased when the vast majority are highly conflicted. Well, you tell a story in this amazing article you wrote where you detail a lot of these things about a fellow who was treated for cancer, but it was outside the guidelines. Tell us some of the details of that. Well, this uh, patient was treated for cancer and a certain medication was used and the guidelines uh, put out by the, uh, you know, the cancer specialty group uh, said that this particular medication should be used only for a certain period of time. It was a number of years. And, and the physician, with the consent of the patient, informed consent, he told them risks versus benefits, and the patient chose. And it was uh, decided to continue this treatment this drug treatment that the patient had been doing very well on. And he did that for, you know, more than a decade. And the patient did very well. And and so a peer review action, a disciplinary action was brought against this physician so as to exclude him from the hospital and ruin his career based on the hypothesis that he violated 
the guidelines, which said you shouldn't have used that medication for 11 years or however long it was because, you know, patients with this kind of cancer, we know by consensus, they don't live that long. So you must have made a wrong diagnosis or something. And uh, actually, the people who did the peer review, you know, probably would have been happier had the patient died earlier. And it was just it was a horrendous thing. And so they suggested that the diagnosis was wrong and he never should have used the cancer medication, which was very, very effective. It helped the man live much longer than likely he would have lived. It's so strange to me because if something works and it's not harming the patient, there should be no objection to using it. And the key here, and we think all the way back to the oath of hypocrisy saying, do no harm. We don't want to be crazy and see the patient sitting there getting sick and saying, well, I'm just fixed on this idea and I'll keep on using this drug. We're not talking about that. We're talking about something that's working. It's not hurting the patient, yet it doesn't fit with the so-called official story. And uh, we kind of thought, yeah, the, this official story kind of um, frame of mind should not come in medicine. In medicine should not be political like that. And, and physicians are humans. And so we see things like professional jealousy and anti-competitive type behaviors. So a physician who's having good, very good results, experiencing very good results, others who are similarly treating patients and not getting those results may not like that because, gee, this other guy over here is doing so well and, uh, and we would like to have more patients come to us, so why don't we eliminate him from the hospital? And so those are the kinds of things that go through the minds of people that do sham peer review to eliminate physicians, good physicians from the hospital. Well, we're going to go into this. I want you to describe what peer review is. And because uh, a lot of people don't have the kind of jobs that have these peer review committees, but medicine is big. And again, peer review is an idea that's good. If you have a colleague who's really outrageous, that it gets discussed by a group of people, presumably whose uh, personal have no personal beef with that person. And we have to remember when we talk about peer review, what does a physician have? All they have is their reputation, their credibility, and of course their license, all of which can be ruined by peer review. So give us a, a, a good explanation and definition, doctor, and what what is sham peer review versus legitimate peer review? So legitimate peer review is a time-honored uh, tradition whereby physicians evaluate the care of other physicians to make sure it's safe and that they're providing quality care. And I want to state right up front that I'm in favor of good faith peer review, as is the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. The only type of peer review I'm opposed to is peer review that's done in bad faith for some purpose other than the furtherance of quality health care. And that's the only kind I'm opposed to, but it's becoming a real problem. So sham peer review is peer review that's done in bad faith 
it's done for some purpose other than quality care and patient safety. And it's often made to look like legitimate peer review. So it's, it's disguised to look like legitimate peer review. So that last part is, is, in my view, kind of an element of fraud. When you present something as if it's good faith peer review and it's really not, and they try and make it look like it's good faith peer review, but it's bad faith peer review, to me, that's kind of a fraud thing. Well, I remember reading, this is a few years ago, about a surgeon in Texas who won a lawsuit against the hospital for people criticizing him for the way he did a certain procedure. Unfortunately, I can't remember exactly what it was, whether it was robotics or something, but it was, as it turned out, it was something where he was making more money than the folks who were doing things the old-fashioned way. And it kind of disgusts me, not kind of, it does disgust me, that doctors would put their egos or their financial gain above patient safety. And in fact, I think Sometimes I think I've heard you mention that doctors have even sabotaged other doctors for financial gain. Absolutely. And they, I've seen some doctors use patients as pawns to get the doctor. And that's absolutely disgusting and abhorrent. And there was a case in Arizona where there was a very talented and innovative cardiovascular surgeon. And one of the things he went around the country teaching other cardiovascular surgeons to do was something called off-pump procedures. So when you do open-heart surgery, and I'm not an open-heart surgeon, but when you do it, most people are put on a heart-lung machine, a pump, to take the place of the heart while they're doing surgery. The problem with that is there is an increased incidence of complications such as strokes, and so this doctor thought, hmm, I wonder if we can do an off-pump procedure and get good results without the complications. So that is what he was doing. But the other cardiovascular surgeons at the same hospital didn't like that because he was getting good results. Patients were not having the complications they were having uh, doing it the regular way. And so they got together to figure a way to revoke his privileges and get him out of the hospital. And unfortunately, they were successful in doing that. Oh, this is, you know, <laughs> people talk about um, how healthcare has de degenerated and looked to all sorts of things. And when Obamacare came in, it was like, oh, well, this will give everybody access to healthcare. But and, and even people who are for socialized medicine say, well, see, if it was socialized medicine, then you wouldn't have things like that. There wouldn't be any economic gain and you can go on and on and on. But some of the biggest problems that happen are because humans are humans and you can't fight human nature. And if there's kind of evil folks out there, there's still going to be evil folks out there that they're going to find some other way to try to beat their colleague down and elevate themselves, whether it's to get a higher position on the food chain, even in a socialistic system. Some animals are more equal than others. So I, 
I don't know if eliminating money from the equation that sometimes it seems like it's just ego and um, <laughs> that that requires, I guess I need to have a psychiatrist on here. How, how can e- e- ego overtake us and make us not put patients first? And unfortunately, when certain evildoers get into positions of power, this is what they look at. They, they look at this as their opportunity to teach their colleague who has better results a lesson. And, and that's what they go for. Well, you brought up power, and we're going to talk about that in our last segment and how this whole peer review idea has gone from local to state to national and the concept of finding some way to vilify doctors when you don't like what they have to say. Right now, I just want to thank everybody for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. As you know, we are always a beat ahead, and you can hear Pulse every weekday at 5 with an encore at 11 p.m. and on iHeartRadio at 8 a.m. the next morning. All these are Eastern times. You can listen on our media player from any web browser anywhere in the world. And what I like is that in 24 hours, the shows go to podcasts and the episodes are on lots of networks, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, TuneIn, Stitcher, and iHeart. So make it easy to find bookmark americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. One of the other wonderful things I like about Pulse is that it's a different doctor every day. Me, Marilyn Singleton, I'm on on Mondays, Tuesdays. We've got Dr. Jordan Vaughn and Dr. Stuart Tankersley. Wednesdays, we have Dr. Peter McCulloch and Malcolm Out Loud. Thursdays, we have the conscience of psychiatry, Dr. Peter Bregan and Ginger Ross Bregan. And Fridays, we've got epidemiologist Dr. Harvey Reich. Now, we also have Nurses Out Loud, and they're on Mondays through Fridays at 10 a.m. Eastern. So thanks again for listening. America Out Loud beats to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. Well, we know you because we are you. AmericaOutloud.com. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years, but our diet and the way we eat has, creating an environment in your mouth for bacteria to wreak havoc on your teeth and gums. For better oral health, get Spry Dental Defense, an oral care line designed to combat acid-creating bacteria. The toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and gum all contain xylitol, a natural ingredient shown to dramatically improve oral health. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural retailers. 
Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity, unlike other supplements that don't work. Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free, love it, or your money back, guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code out loud. Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. We're going to go back to power plays. Power seems to be the name of the game, and it doesn't just end in regular politics, but it enters medicine, too. So what's with this new word? It's not, I guess, not so new anymore in our medical lexicon. Disinformation sounds right out of a book on Lenin, Stalin, or Marx, doesn't it? Well, the disinformation is uh, out of Orwell's 1984, The Ministry of Truth. And it's uh, it's been utilized here to punish uh, physicians, for example, who are speaking out with innovative ideas that have proved to be effective and work very well. And so disinformation has been defined by government entities. If if you don't, as a doctor, if you don't go along with whatever the official government narrative is, you may be labeled as spreading disinformation or misinformation. Well, give an example of what disinformation is, and I'm sure people are thinking COVID, 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 because it's it's big now. What are some of the things that have been said? that have turned out to be true? Well, uh, natural immunity in the, in the COVID era ha- has always been uh, good and superior to the immunity one gets with vaccinations. And of course, throughout the COVID era, certainly early on, we had government health officials telling people that natural immunity was no good. It was inferior to the vaccine-induced immunity. And now even some of those uh, health officials are having to admit, well, yeah, the natural immunity is better. And they were requiring, based on that wrong notion, they were requiring people who already had gotten COVID and survived, who had antibodies, to get vaccinated. And and certainly those individuals can be at increased risk for various uh, adverse effects by getting vaccinated once they've survived COVID. So that's a prime example during the COVID era. Wow. Well, speaking of COVID, now there is something called Team Halo that frankly, I hadn't heard of until I read about it in your article. Can you explain and let the audience know what that is in case they hear that term? And it's not a show about angels. 
No, definitely not. <laughs> Team Halo uh, was a program established by the World Health Organization in 2020. And the underlying idea was to establish a global public health program. And it, it comes from various uh, sources and collaborators, uh, but they basically, Team Halo trains and deploys scientists and doctors all around the world on TikTok <laughs> to deal with so-called COVID disinformation. And they teach people on their website, you know, how to file complaints with medical boards, nursing boards against medical professionals who express views that are contrary to the official uh, narrative. So, so that's where the, the concept Team Halo came from. It's a, a globalist public health program. Oh, my goodness. And, of course, we're all supposed to follow the same rules, whether we're in sub-Saharan Africa or uh, North America, I presume. And who are these people? And we have already know that Tedros is the head of who is not a good guy and doesn't have a history of being a good guy. Why should we listen to him? Well, they certainly did a good job in the WHO of trying to cover for the Chinese communists about where this virus came from. And, uh, you know, they so they were really on the side of the communist Chinese at that point. And, and now we have, I guess, the Biden administration wanting to turn over uh, a lot of uh, things to the WHO in terms of, uh, you know, what mandates people should follow in our country. I, I guess he wants the WHO to set those mandates and then we have to follow them. Well, obviously, it's ridiculous that each country is its own separate country with uh, its own population and its own issues, its own healthcare system. I suppose they can use the argument that, well, these people might get on an airplane and then they're going to go to another country. So we want something standardized. But my goodness, does that mean that everybody's going to have to get yellow fever shots just because there's yellow fever in the trial? Tropics and we, you know, our plane is going to touch down in the tropics somewhere. It, I, and I guess why it bothers me that here in America we're jumping on board to something like that is we have this illegal border crossing problem where we've got people coming into the country that we don't know who they are. They're from areas that have endemic diseases such as TB. And they're bringing it into the country and we don't know. And so these are people who don't have, well, I'll just say it, any right to be here. Yet we, the legal residents of the United States, would be subjected to who knows what, a list of restrictions, mandates, and telling us what to do with our lives. Something about it doesn't seem quite right to me. Everything about it doesn't seem quite right to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me what happens when a doctor feels that he has been wrongly accused of something. Now, AAPS, that's the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, has a 
Sham Peer Review Hotline. Am I giving the correct name? Sham Peer Review Hotline. Yes. And, and I've run that on a pro bono basis for about 20 years now. So tell me an example of what happens if somebody calls you what you can. I realize most of the things, in fact, you know, 99.9 things are kept in total confidence, but just kind of hypothetically, what would happen? You know, I pick up the phone, I think somebody's out to get me. What do you do? I tell the story, you listen, do kind of develop, is she a wacko? How far do I investigate? How do, how does that work? Yeah, well, one of the first things I tell them is I'm not an attorney. I don't give legal advice or legal opinions, and they need to get that type of thing from their attorneys. But we get all we get all sorts of calls on the hotline where the person is in various stages of sham peer review. Some before it's happened, some call us immediately after what's called a summary suspension. And then some call us sometimes years down the line where they've had a revocation of privileges and they want to know what can be done. So depending on the circumstances, there's different things that can be done. And it, it's all very, you know, detailed and uh, focused on the individual situation. There are things, for example, that can be done if a person's been summarily suspended to prevent, at least temporarily, a report to the National Practitioner Data Bank. And we tell them about those things. And just so people know, the National Practitioner Data Bank is a federal database where physicians who have had adverse actions against their privileges, they put that in the data bank. And after that is in the data bank, the physician uh, may not be able to work anywhere else. Career may be ended. It's interesting you bring up the National Practitioner Data Bank. This is something, yet again, an idea gone bad, where anybody can look at it and it lists that there was an action against a doctor. The thing that's interesting about this, one, it costs more in malpractice cases, mainly because there was a time when a doctor, even if he or she knew they were falsely accused. They just happened to be in a surgery where there was a problem and they were the assistant. They came in after the problem, whatever it might be. They settled for a small amount just to make it go away and didn't fight it. But when the National Practitioner Data Bank came out, that would be listed that they settled that case, even though they knew they did nothing wrong and they just wanted to make it go away so they could move on in their life and their career. So that's one bad thing about it. The other thing is it it's a tool when doctors are being accused of something and they do want to make a settlement for one of these peer review things is trying to get the language to read where it doesn't look like they're a criminal. And a lot of times it can go a year or so haggling over how you say it, where you don't want it to look like he was wrong, but there was this proceeding against him. It's, it's just a very weird system. And it's one of those government things that 
what did you say earlier? The road to hell is paved with good intentions, that it's been corrupted. And just so people know, there are different types of data bank reports. The type of data bank report that occurs when there's a malpractice judgment or settlement tends not to ruin a physician's career unless he has a bunch of them. Whereas one of these uh, adverse action reports, something reported by a hospital, those are the ones that tend to totally ruin or end a physician's uh, career. And, and if people are arguing over what to put in there, you know, as far as the narrative, it's a waste of time and money because the narrative makes no difference whatsoever. The fact that a physician has a data bank report, an adverse action report, is a big red flag. It doesn't matter what it says in the narrative. It, hospitals view such physicians as damaged goods and they won't put them on medical staff. Well, it's really sad because uh, the state medical boards have similar things every quarter, I guess, in California, a newsletter comes out and it gives a list of the bad boys of, of the quarter. And people read that name. And it's, it's again, it's online. Anybody can read it. Sometimes they're valid. Sometimes they're not. And if that doctor happens to be your doctor, if if he's been a good doctor to you, you just kind of ignore it or you can even ask, you know, what's the story here and decide whether you want to keep that doctor. But as I said earlier, all a doctor has is their reputation. And in California, the governor did sign. It's called AB 2098. And that was punishing doctors for misinformation or disinformation. And this is sick. It's absolutely sick, especially, and and right now, it just says about COVID-19. But so what? It started with COVID-19. It could be to anything, any specialty. And certainly, I'm sure as a neurologist and particularly with things like Parkinson's disease that so many people have, doctors want to try anything to make their patient better. Would they get in trouble for disinformation? Probably. (laughs) (laughs) AAPS is right out in front, you know, this uh, California bill, AB 2098. There's a couple of ongoing lawsuits currently under appeal. And the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons has stepped up to the plate, and we're going to file an amicus brief uh, to oppose this California AB 2098, uh, because that will, you know, punish all sorts of doctors and get rid of their licenses just because they're uh, telling people the truth and the facts uh, as they know it. Well, this, and we're, uh, let's see. Probably in a couple of weeks, I'll have Andy Schlafly, APS general counsel on the show, and we'll talk about some of these lawsuits and why they're so important. And for people who hear this and think, oh, well, it's the doctor and, you know, we'll find another one and and maybe the government's right and, you know, maybe they're a quack, whatever you might think. Just remember, and this is something uh, before the ACLU got completely wacko, 
one of the old heads of the ACLU said something kind of channeling the great philosopher Jeremy Bentham. The first target of censorship is rarely the last. And we all have to remember that, that they start with somebody who's visible like a doctor. They make a great target. They make good examples and people can you know, throw stones at them and publicly humiliate them. But guess what? The ordinary guy is next. Excellent observations, Marilyn. <laughs> I mean, if you think about Shampiro, if you uh, getting rid of the best, most innovative, most compassionate doctors, what will be left? So it's not just a doctor problem. It's a patient problem, too. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Huntoon, I can't believe it, but our hour is at its end. And I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us about all this. Tell our listeners how they can get in touch and read more about sham peer review, disinformation, clinical practice guidelines, all these things that ultimately affect patient care. And thank you for having me on the show today. I greatly appreciate the opportunity. If people want to read more about Sham Peer Review and some of these things, they can go to our journal website, www.jpands.org. All of our articles are downloadable free of charge. We don't use usernames and passwords. You can just have the articles in PDF format and read them as you like. Well, thank you. And thank you again for coming on the show. And I want to thank everybody for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. And remember, we do have our feature of Q&A. Just if you have any questions, you can send them to americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. And first names are fine. And we'll email you back an answer. It can be for the host or for the guest. And we will get back to you. So I would just like to say in closing, whether you agree or have other opinions about what you've heard, please share the show. And thanks again for listening. And until next week, say it loud. I'm free and I'm proud.